Hello and welcome to the Data Cafe. I'm Jason. And I'm Jeremy. And today we're talking about Bayesian inference. Bayesian inference based on Thomas Bayes. I did mention to you, Jeremy, were you with us when we visited his grave? I was. In London. Yes, yes, in a local London cemetery. Yeah, that was, uh, Bunhills. That was, that was a real... A point of uh, pilgrimage almost for any uh, any data scientist. Yeah, it's an amazing cemetery actually, just to visit as a tourist. And he is the person who came up with Bayesian um, statistics as a really cool area of statistical inference. So what is Bayesian inference? A Bayesian inference is, I think, one of the sort of go-to approaches as a data scientist. And it really sort of reflects you know the ethos almost the philosophy of data science in in a very simple uh, and you know easily understandable um theorem and approach so bayesian inference it really starts with a model or a hypothesis about a particular data set and then allows you to update that model as more data comes in. So basically, you've got this lovely scenario. It's almost well beyond its time of almost a streaming data set where you've got, you've got streaming data coming into your model. As the data comes in, you take each batch or each data point and you change your model in uh, response to that data and update your model to be hopefully more realistic, more relevant to the data that you're actually actually seeing. So it's, it's this whole concept of sort of model and updating in response to the data you're seeing. So really super relevant to data science, I think. And crucially depends on the probabilistic modeling that we're bringing in here. So what's the probability of something happening, let's say, and if I have another data point that indicates it's likely to happen, I'm going to come up with a higher probability that, yeah, it's more likely to happen because I've now learned an additional piece of information that makes me change my mind or if it's a model, makes the model um, head towards the actual truth. Yeah, all, all these models that we've been talking about are statistical. They're formed around probabilities. And um, as, as a result, they, the probability of seeing a particular outcome or output from your model is, is just that. You know, it's between zero and one. It gives you a level of confidence, maybe, that you're, you're seeing something that is very likely or, um, or is very unlikely uh, to, to happen. Again, it, it typifies the sort of the data scientist experience, which is that these things are rarely given in true and false on-off state. They are more often than not, uh, outputs that are that, that that are probabilistic that are uh, you know have a have a measure of uncertainty about them. Yeah, as every model does, it's never going to be a perfect representation of what can happen in the world. But you want to have a high confidence in the model, and you want to have an answer that gives you a high probability of something happening, and then you can react to that. Um, I guess if your model is flipping a coin, it kind of doesn't matter <laughs> about having a model at all. What difference does it make if your coin has come up heads or tails? <laughs> you pick, pick an outcome. Um, but your, your model there might be that it's that it's unbiased initially, so it's it's equal and and therefore really simple. But you know, if 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 the data starts to come in, you know, we've all had situations where you start flipping a coin. You go, hang on a minute, I've had ten heads in a row. What's 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 yeah. what's up with this coin? Maybe yeah. it's not. Maybe it's not. 
not, not, not a fair coin, maybe it's a biased coin. <laughs> yeah, and this is where it gets really confusing, actually, because at any one instance of flipping the coin, if it's not a biased coin, then your chance of picking heads or tails doesn't change, right? You, you're right. not, you know, just because you've had nine out of ten um, heads and you're going to flip it that tenth time, you don't have a higher likelihood of it being heads if it's an unbiased coin. But it's really confusing because what I learned about when I first picked up a book on probability was the Monty Hall problem. Oh, yeah. That if people have heard of it, it's a really kind of fun anecdote about um, how probabilities can affect your decision making. Have you, you heard of it? It's all goats and cars to me. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, um, I think the premise is you're in a game show and there's three doors presented to you and behind one of the doors is the winning car as the prize. Right. And the other two doors is a goat and you're going to be traveling home on the goat. Okay. <laughs> and um, they ask you to pick a door and you pick a door. They don't open the door, but they say, hold up, we're going to open one of the other doors okay. and show you, had you picked, let's say you picked door number one, had you picked door number two, it turns out that would have been a goat. Now, do you want to stick with your original choice of door number one uh, yeah, yeah, or yeah. change your mind and okay. pick door number three? Okay. And everyone always says, you shouldn't change. You should just, why would it, why would it matter? That's what I think. I think that would be the popular decision yeah. in this, wouldn't it? Why, why would it matter? You just now have two doors instead of three. So out of two doors, it's 50-50 now, right? Instead yeah. of yeah. one out of three chances. But no, yeah. it's really interesting because you still have the information that you had when there was three doors. But because you picked one and they've now shown you one of the others was a goat, mm. the probability of the other door being a car is actually now two thirds instead mm. of the one third. So you've had to update your model basically in the presence of a data point which has come in, which was one of the doors being open. Exactly. And shown to be a gate. Right. Yeah. And it's really counterintuitive, but when you work it out, you draw all situations and scenarios on paper, you can see why that's the case. But it's really telling um, just as a way to explain how important retaining your new information is when you go forward with your next decision. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think it feeds into you know a lot of what we talked about previously, which is you know data science should be used for decisions. It should be used for actual outcomes to drive you know an an, an event, an impact which you want to have as a result of uh, a result of the data science. So in that sense, it's really really helpful. Yeah, and the mathematics works out. And we see where is this applied in the world of data science. And one of the examples we talked about was spam email detection. Yeah, no, there's a, there's a lot of companies doing this sort of uh, streamed work, really. I mean, email you can think of as a stream into an organization. And it turns out that there's a lot of you know, nefarious actors out there who are trying to get people to take uh, you know maybe bad decisions or poor decisions based on the email that they're, they're getting i mean this is no surprise to anybody who gets a ton of email like you and i do um you know it used to be financial scheme or or other but the you know it's it's become more nuanced there's there's different categories of malicious email there's sort of things called spear phishing attacks where someone pretends to be your boss and says, oh, um, I'm locked out of the office and I can't get to my computer. Would you mind sending me uh, that key report, you know, that sensitive piece of data that I've asked for, that I know the employment record of a colleague or something? Would you mind sending that to me? 
then I'd be really grateful. And and if they fake the email address in a sort of sufficiently clever way, sometimes even spoof it to the email server, then it can look really, really authentic and they can get quite a lot of information out of some poor unsuspecting employee in the company. And and then, you know, obviously bad things happen as a result of that. Yeah. So the outcome there is, can we use our Bayesian tools to update our belief about a given email and say, well, I've seen these features in this email. And as a result, I now believe that this may be a spear phishing attack, or it may be um, some other type of spam that I'm trying to prevent. And Maybe I ask my users, you know, occasionally, can you just tell me whether that was a good email or a bad email? Can you tell me whether it's a spam or not? And then I'm starting to get data in the form of new emails. I'm starting to get corroborating classification from my users. So that's between those data sets, I'm starting to update my belief model about what an actual spam email looks like in the context of trying to prevent this sort of thing happening. So every time I hit report junk, I'm actually labeling a data set. Yeah, you're doing, you're doing, you're doing everyone a really good service there. Yeah, doing my bit. Yeah, <laughs> and we've seen this as well in um, medical testing. So, what's really kind of innocuous about the spam email example is it doesn't really matter if a spam gets through to my inbox. I probably recognize it as a human as something that's a phishing attempt. You know, maybe um, the likelihood of me sending somebody my credit card is low if I'm questioning it. I'm, I'm a cautious user of my emails. But in the medical realm, mm. we kind of have the same setup, but you can run a test for a medical process, but you can also then see whether you have what's called false positives or false negatives in your results. And there can be a more important side effect there. Absolutely. And, and I think it introduces a number of really useful concepts from, again, the data science statistical perspective and way of thinking about problems. I mean, you know, we're all, you know, getting very familiar with types of COVID tests at the moment and the implications, obviously, of having a a positive or a negative test in in any of these sort of regimes are quite, you know, serious. They're they're quite impacting on, on an individual so, you know, it really does matter. You, you, there are, um, in, in the UK at the moment, there's a program to roll out a type of COVID test called lateral flow test to all of the uh, secondary schools that are going to be then putting these, these tests in place on a, you know, weekly or biweekly basis. And, and, and this is a test which has a, a good true positive rate, but it also has quite a high false positive rate if you, especially if you're asymptomatic, mm-hmm. apparently. So I wanted to set that up a bit, actually, because what you're about to get into is always really potentially confusing because when we think of a medical test, there's supposed to be only two answers, which is either I test positive or negative. But kind of there's at least four answers, four main answers, because it Mm. depends also on me whether I have the um, condition or not. So you are testing me as somebody who doesn't have COVID 
and I can either have a positive or negative result. But then if you test somebody who, who does have COVID, you have a positive or a negative result. Yes. So you get your different combination of possible results. And that's where the rates come in with regards to specificity or sensitivity of your test. And I always find these confusing in my classification matrix. But if we have somebody who has COVID and has a positive test result, then that's a true positive and that's a high sensitivity, hopefully. Yep. But you're talking about this test that maybe doesn't have a high sensitivity. Yeah, it, it, I think it's something like I read on the government website, it's something like 75% sensitive in the case where you have just anybody with COVID. So you don't know if they've got very high propensity to infect, a very high viral load or not. So it's better. If, I mean, the good news is it's much better if, if people have a high viral load and they're, they're infecting loads of other people, then you find out very quickly, which you sort of it's hope... It's easier to detect. Would. Yeah, right, right, exactly. And so you, you're absolutely right. You come across this concept of the rather aptly named sort of confusion matrix very quickly, which is these four states, the things that you just outlined there, of uh, you know true positives and false positives. And you always have to sort of take a step back and hang on a minute, which one's that? Every uh, time. Every time, yes. <laughs> right now on the podcast, <laughs> after practicing it, I'm still doing uh, it in my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah me too. So and for, for these particular tests, these lateral flow tests, you've got this true positive rate. But obviously, if, if you hit a false positive, that means that someone's going to be potentially isolating for you know 10 days, two weeks, something like that. That's quite a high life impact for, for what is a, a, an error yeah. in, in the test, I suppose you could say. The recommendation in some countries and in some situations is that you should go, okay, so you take the lateral flow test, which is nice and easy, you can do it at home, it comes up in an answer in 20 minutes, half an hour or something. And then if you come up with a positive, you should then go on to take one of the more precise tests, something with a, a higher uh, sensitivity. So that would be the PCR test, I think. That has a better better outcome, but it's more expensive and it takes longer to get the results. So there's a lot of... What you find in these testing situations is there's a lot of context around the test that you have to take into account. And you know you have to become uh, epidemiological expert almost in the test to really get to the bottom of, of this. And in the context of a school uh, running these sequence of tests or having all of these test results come in, because you're supposed to report whatever the result is, true or false... Once you've taken them, you, you want to know, right, I've got a model for my current belief that we have a COVID outbreak in, in my school. That would be really important to know, given the, this this stream of data that's constantly being updated. And, and that's where I think this Bayesian approach and mindset can be super helpful. Yeah, and more than that with Bayesian, I'm thinking we could have more information to bring in about who it is you're testing. I was listening to a report about it recently saying that there had been some links to obesity, but they don't want that to overtake the really important one, which is age. And if you're in certain age brackets, that's where you're more likely to have a bad reaction to COVID. Yeah, so they've noticed these correspondences. That's very much a probabilistic association of if you have COVID and you have one of these features, if yeah. you like, if you, if you are older or, yeah. or you are... Um, yeah, age isn't a condition, right? No. That's where I was going to say it. Yeah. Not a lot you can do about that, as I, as I know. Um, then then you, you, know, you have a higher probability of it turning out not so good for you. 
that's a, I think, quite a useful way of thinking about this. It'd be quite good actually to talk about the sort of the actors in this formula, in this way of constructing this uh, the Bayesian world I- in the context maybe of your COVID testing. So I mean, you've got the notion then of. And this is where it's so important, I think, to data science. You've got the notion of, I have a model, I have a belief about whether I have this infection personally or in my school, and I have lots of data that I, that's coming in on a daily basis that I'm using to inform. So the the outcome of that process is what we're interested in. It's, it's well, what is my update to my current understanding of whether I have COVID? So that's called my posterior distribution. And that's my posterior, so in that context. And that's that's made up of a few other actors in this, which is the likelihood that I have COVID at all. So that would be the probability of having that set of data that I have, that set of tests, given the belief that I have in, in whether I have COVID or whether my school has COVID. Um, so that's the, that's a likelihood agent in this process. And then you've got your prior, which is your, which is where you were before you started this whole thing. It's like, well, do I believe I have COVID or not? You know, maybe there are some symptoms going on. So you have an internal suspicion that you have, um, you have COVID or you don't have COVID. So that's your prior. And that all gets fed into this machine to give you your output. And then finally, you have, what's the probability that I was going to get those test results anyway? Just randomly or you know looking at the whole population i suppose what's my estimate that i would have that particular sequence of test results at all given the nature of the test and that's where you have to understand the test so carefully and that's your marginal likelihood so there's lots of these elements that go into it and you then you stick them all together and you end up with what i said at the beginning which was this posterior probability that you have covid based on the data and the power is it allows you to update that incrementally, almost on a stream basis as you get new data, you can update your belief about that outcome. And right at the individual level, I, before I ever heard of COVID, would never have reason to think that I have it. That's my prior. And then I start to learn what COVID is and suddenly maybe I've got a tickle in my throat or a bit of a cough or losing my sense of smell and I want data now, I go and get a test. And that test will either tell me whether I do or don't have COVID, but it's not actually 100% guaranteed that the test is accurate. So I update my posterior. My belief now is, oh, I very well might have COVID because I've gotten a positive test result from this quick and easy test that's good to roll out. But I'm going to get a second one because, again, more data means I can update my understanding of whether I do or don't have COVID and be even more convinced that the result is true, just at an individual level. Yeah, absolutely. That's quite a nice example because even those suspicions that you had, even those sort of expression of symptoms counters data in this model. You know, you start off from the point of view of not, I definitely don't, and then suddenly you get a tickly cough or you, you you lose your sense of smell and that's data i mean maybe not data that you write down or, or tell anyone about but it is it's still data that that you're aware of and so that starts to update your belief model and then you add in the test as well and that's that's more data and that's more persuasive maybe nice and you had a interview with somebody who knows a lot about this from especially an algorithmic point of view dr joseph walmswell a principal data scientist at abcam let's hear what he told us I'm joined in the Data Cafe today by Dr. Joseph Warmswell, who's Principal Data Scientist at Life Sciences Company, Abcam. Uh, welcome, Joseph. 
Uh, thank you, Jeremy. And we've just had a really interesting talk from you today around the area of uh, Bayesian inference and all that goes with that. And I really wanted to start with um, how, in your view, Bayesian inference and, and Bayes formula really relates to data science from your experience? Well, I suppose I'd start by saying it doesn't relate enough. So there's quite a divide still between um, people with a, say, a mathematical statistics background and then practicing data scientists. That's understandable given that um, there are a lot of data science methods that aren't really mathematical at all, like the random forest, but which are very effective. And if you've got a toolbox of, of very effective methods, why would you want to be, as you might see it, unnecessarily constraining yourself by constructing parameterized models? Mm. And that's fair enough, but you then um, are faced with, with a serious difficulty when, firstly, when you, you need to construct a parameterized model, when the, the parameters are important rather than just the ability to make a prediction. So an example of this might be if you were, say, an e-commerce company and you were trying to understand what drove people to your website and then what, what actions caused people to buy things. Now, being able to predict something is, is one thing, but you really want to understand the, the causal structure of what's going on underneath. So there, a model rather than a black box can be useful. Then the other, the other point where I think data science can learn something from Bayesian statistics is in understanding that that knowledge is effectively probabilistic. So you might set up your, your neural net, for example, to, uh, to classify an image as it might be, and then out comes your result. It's, it's a cat or it's a dog. But that's not really what the, um, even your, your black box is capable of doing it will think with some probability that it's it's a dog or it's a cat and they're understanding that and then understanding what sort of probability distribution is really going on is important so to be more specific say you're trying to do forecasting within your net yeah if you're forecasting say something that's fairly big numbers over a fairly fixed order of magnitude then the standard neural net approach of trying to optimize for mean squared error will probably work quite well. But if you're trying to forecast, say, small numbers, so as it might be sales of a, a product line that does, doesn't move very quickly, that might sell, say, one unit this week and zero units the next week and, say, three the other week, then using um, mean squared error naively in your neural net is probably going to give you worse results than if you thought, well, this is effectively a Poisson process. My neural net behind the scenes is going to take in all the information I know and then come up with some best guess at what's going on. But the way I relate that best guess to, to different outcomes, so if I wanted, for example, to calculate um, how likely is it, it is that I will sell, say, one or two units, I should make my calculations on the assumption that I've got my Poisson mean and then I can use the Poisson distribution to do that calculation. So I suppose it boils down to that data science often does need Bayesian methods without realizing it. Yes. I mean, the thing that strikes me about Bayes, just as a sort of philosophy as much as, as, much as a tool, at least initially, is that you've, you've got this idea at the core that, that represents the model I'm creating as informed by 
the data that I've I have access to. And I don't, and, I, and as a data scientist, you know, we, we we like to think we can create sort of beautifully general models, but really we only have access to the data that we're given. And that's really all we have to go on until we get more data, until we yes. discover more knowledge about the system. So, you know, in the neural net example, you can, the neural net's only really as good as the training data you've historically given it to be able to tune those parameters and, and get it into a trained state. But if you then expose it to more training data, it might be, it might get better. It might become overfitted. It might you know it, it would change state. But it's it's all dependent on that data. And I like Bayes from the perspective of it being dependent on on the data. It's explicitly sort of in there, right, right at the heart of it. Is that is that something you take advantage of? Yes, yes, I agree with that. And then I, I'd add also that Bayesian reasoning is well, it's, it's human reasoning. It is how our brains actually work. We have a prior belief about a situation. We, we get some data, we, we update it, and then we have, have a new belief based on combining the two. And there's a nice example of how this practical Bayesian reasoning intersected with what appeared at least to be a very effective black box neural net algorithm right back in the 80s when Department of Defense in the United States funded a project at a particular American university to build a neural net that would take images of East German forests and then predict whether or not there's a, a Warsaw Pact tank column in it. And the idea <laughs> is that this algorithm could be loaded into a, uh, an automatic camera mounted on a NATO tank that could be then scanning the surroundings all the time and would then identify various possible hazards to the tank commander. And they were very happy to begin with when this achieved 100% accuracy. And they, they, they did it all very well. They had a, a, a specific test set set aside and they were getting 100% accuracy on the test set. And the, the, the Bayesian brain would probably say something like, well, my prior belief at the effectiveness of this classifier is such that 100% accuracy is just not priorly plausible at all. I just don't believe that. My, prior probability is that there is a certain possibility that the algorithm is doing something wrong somewhere. And I don't know what it is, but that's why it's being accurate. And it turned out that what had happened was that the spies who provided the training data had photographed the German forests without tanks uh, on a sunny day and the German forests with, with tanks on a, a cloudy day. So all the neural net was really doing was telling you what the weather was. Brilliant. Yes, of course. <laughs> so it was just spotting spotting the light conditions in the photo and going, there, there must be a tank or there isn't a tank. Yes. Right. <laughs> yes. Oh, I like that. And then I think you alluded to it there. You've got this, this idea in, in Bayes of it being, of there being a prior model, a prior sort of belief about the world, about the, the data set that you're, or the problem you're considering it, which is informed by the data set. And then, you know, but sort of Bayes nicely provides you this sort of update mechanism for saying, right, well, I had that prior model. That was my that was my belief. This is what I believe to be true. I believe there was a tank in that forest. But now I'm being given more data. And now I can update that to say, well, there's only a tank when <laughs> when, when the sun's out. <laughs> or there's only there's, because that's when tanks happen. Or there's only there's only a tank when I can see a met, metal glinting maybe in the photograph. Yes, that is the great charm of Bayesian inference, that your state of knowledge is captured by your posterior. And once you have that, you can then disregard 
how you came to that state of knowledge. So you, you don't need to store all your previous data points when you rerun your model. You just store your posterior. Of course, in practice, that's easier said than done if your posterior is in the form of a bunch of samples from Monte Carlo methods rather than a function. If, if that's the case, then starting the, the, the inferential process using that as a prior is not easy. You'd have to fit some sort of kernel density estimator to it, and it's, it's possible that you might be better off, in fact, running it on the entire previous data set. But there's a lot of interesting work there about filtering samples and trying to approximate a, a prior based on a sample posterior. I think your reference then to essentially how human beings really update their belief and they do it based on their observations, their sensing of their environment. I think that's a really nice analogy and probably why I guess Bayes has been such a popular go-to then for scientists, especially now data scientists, over the last sort of two or three decades. It is, yes. And I think what we'll see is is more of a, a melding of the traditional statistician with the data scientists. So there are people who run Bayesian neural nets, for example, where you have not merely an output function that's probabilistic, but the parameters themselves that make up the neural net are conceived of probabilistically rather than just optimized to, to optimize the output. Amazon have a, a very good forecasting package that runs on their StageMaker platform where you can set the output probability distribution to be a great variety of things. So you could, um, if you're dealing, dealing with count data, you could use the Poisson distribution. If you're dealing with over-dispersed count data, you could use the negative binomial. So where do you see this going? You mentioned a couple of techniques earlier around kernel estimation. What, what, what's the sort of the next step for someone really wanting to get into Bayesian inference and use this in, a, in, a, in an exciting way in their, in their work? Well, one thing we haven't mentioned at all is the problem of model choice. So Bayes, um, the Bayes theorem applied to parameter estimation comes with it the notion that the chosen model, as it might be linear regression, is, is your given for everything. So the probability of the data is the probability of the data given the model. Uh, but, mm -hmm. um, the likelihood, yes, the, the prior is the probability even of the parameters given the model. Mm -hmm. And um, even for something like linear regression, you might have the choice between fitting with, say, a straight line or fitting with a quadratic. And the quadratic will probably give you a better fit under most circumstances because you've got one more free parameter to play with. Yes. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's it's the best the, the best model. Now, this is where data science um, can can help because the formal Bayesian approach, as you're well aware, Jeremy, is that you calculate the model evidence for your, your two different situations. You calculate the probability of the, uh, the data given the model by integrating the posterior, and then you use the fact that the probability of the data given the model is proportional to the probability of the model given the data. Now, integrating the posterior is um, even harder than sampling from it. And there are those some, some interesting ways to do that. So you could take a, an end run around the problem by modifying your Monte Carlo sampling process to jump between different models, for example, mm. so different parameterizations. And if 
um, the two parameterizations are not so different, that the likelihood isn't so different, then a jump will have some probability of being accepted. I did this for my PhD at one point. It was about whether looking at star clusters and deciding how many different age populations were there. So it was a, a question of the right model as well as the right parameters, how many clusters, how many populations, as well as how old they were. So that's quite interesting, but tricky. It's very tricky to tune properly. Um, whereas the data scientist would say at this point that you are just overcomplicating it. You just have your, your testing data set, you measure your model accuracy based on that, and then you pick your best parameterization based on that. And most of the time I'd, I'd agree with this. So if in doubt, keep it simple. Yeah. Seems like a nice, nice mantra to uh, attack um, most data science problems. Excellent. Joseph, uh, thank you very much for joining us in the Data Cafe today. That was really exciting. Yeah, thank you, Jeremy. Joseph said something really cool in that interview about how Bayesian reasoning is human reasoning. And it really stood out to me because it's actually what we were talking about earlier on, that I bring in my own data and as a human, I respond to my environment by gathering data. My senses are what's gathering me data, but then we're trying to translate that way of reasoning into a theorem, into logic, into algorithms, and then apply it and test it in the real world for these examples like the tank that he talked about. Yeah, as I said, it's, it's sort of a theorem that's almost beyond, uh, it comes out of the future uh, from Thomas Bayes' perspective, because it's, it speaks of having this constant stream of data that you're able to process and then update your model, your algorithm, your decision based on data that you're seeing. And that's exactly the sort of architecture that you get in modern uh, machine learned models. We're maybe being fed by um, updating uh, data sets uh, or sort of user clicks from a website or whatever it is that's feeding your uh, feature set. So it, it chimes with the human process of learning and adapting from a child right through to an adult. Yeah. And it also, I, I think, works from the perspective of modern day modeling and uh, data science tooling almost. Yeah, that's actually where when we're growing up, a child plays for the reason of experiencing and interacting with the environment. And when we build our models, we talk about running them in a sandbox. So we're playing in the sandbox, yes. trying to figure out what's the use for the, for the model and what data do we need to add or how do we tweak or fine tune it. So one of the things that occurred to me when talking with uh, Joseph was how he talks about the problem he had in selecting the model from the perspective of a Bayesian um, sort of way of approaching a problem. I thought that was quite a nice sort of a piece of honesty almost from, from Joseph, because what you have when you're, when you're constructing a, a Bayesian model as a data scientist is you have this decision to take. And it's not just a decision around a set of parameters. It's a decision about what, what model should I apply in the first place? Should it be a a Poisson model or a binomial model or a, should it be normal distributed or gamma distributed or something like that? You know, so you've got, you've got all of these many, many possible uh, models to choose from. Whereas what he said was, you know, data scientists would say, oh, well, I'll just throw 
a random forest at it, or I just throw a neural network at, at the problem, and I'll get it to learn the pattern that is emerging from the data that way. So I, I liked that, but I, I, it occurred to me that even something simple like regression has a sort of Bayesian element to it. Yeah, and even before we would get into complicated models, you can see it when we apply linear regression, that you have a certain um, stability to the model based on the current data set that you have. But you can up data with more data. You can add more data points and you can then refit it and you get a new updated version of that model. And so in the case of linear regression, maybe you're classifying a trend in the data and maybe that trend has shifted because of some unknown or maybe there's some reason to go and investigate what that unknown is if something has caused a shift in your data and i think joseph also talked about um the effect of outliers and whether you need to account for them if an outlier is going to dramatically shift your model maybe it wasn't stable in the first place and you need to look at the distribution in your um, beliefs and look at how stable the model is based on how much data you have um, or whether the outlier is actually really interesting and go and figure out what's causing it that's a really good shout and sometimes the outlier is is a, an artifact of you know the collection process or sometimes it's an artifact of the sensor or it just maybe yeah. uh, have got mangled along the way who knows but it can be a nice way of picking up that kind of thing I, again coming back to what joseph was pointing towards which is that sometimes you you can get a better fit from a more complicated model but that may not be what you want you might actually want to be in the constraints of a slightly simpler model in order to cut through that kind of noisy data situation, because otherwise, very classically, you, you get an overfitted uh, model sure. that isn't going to be a good predictor for anything in the future. And I think there was some modelling that happened around the trend of covid and when you added um, exactly what Joseph said, another variable so that you can make it a quadratic but if you extend that into the future and treat it as if it's a forecast, you see the effect of that quadratic fly off in one of the directions that you don't have any data for. It's not constrained and it's no longer valid. You can't be using this as a forecasting tool just because it fit really well in the interval that you did have data. Yeah, interesting. I think there are lots of pitfalls to using a statistical model where you have to have uh, an understanding, I guess, of the underlying dynamics sometimes of what you're looking at to be able to make some of those initial modeling decisions. But when you do have that understanding, when you do have that training, then it's enormously powerful. And it can be a tremendous benefit to the data scientist to have that level of you know, insight and that, and that experience, which if you just use a sort of machine learned toolkit where you have maybe a black box a neural network typically that you're, you're throwing at the problem, maybe that doesn't come through and, and, and you run a much greater risk of accepting data points as legitimate and, you know, as affecting your output function um, and your output classification, if that's what you're doing as a result of not having that greater greater depth. So that balance, I guess, between the simplicity of doing something when you say, I'm deliberately not going to try to understand this system, I'm just going to throw a box at it, mm -hmm. versus the extra insight and understanding and depth that you can bring when you say, oh, I've got a very, very strong hunch that this is a Poisson distributed process and I'm going to base my modelling on that. And that, that gives me probably a much more convergent, accurate process much more quickly. Something else that Joseph mentioned 
I'll ask you, how should we bring more of this way of thinking into data science and, I guess, overcome or see where is the benefit versus the situation you just mentioned about taking something off the shelf, which is valid in many cases. Mm. I just want to see, you know, the usefulness on a current static data set and there doesn't need to be a bigger understanding of what's going on because I've got quite a self-contained problem. Let's say it doesn't have a medical outcome like we talked about with the COVID testing. I think the power from the data science perspective and the way of thinking about a problem, it comes from when you're using this Bayesian update um, inference rule, if you like, comes from being able to recognize the fact that your data is not static, typically, or very rarely. It's very rare that you're given a problem where you say, here's a, here's a body of knowledge, and it's never going to change again. We just want to know, should we go left? Should we go right? Should we spend a million dollars? Should we spend a hundred million dollars? And that's it. It's, it's more often the case that you're given situations where the data changes, that what was true yesterday may not be true tomorrow because the data has shifted and maybe the model has shifted as well. And that, I guess, is where things can get quite quite challenging from the perspective of, of, of a Bayesian model if you were assuming it was one type of model and then and then the very essence of that is, is modified. So it really embodies the, the concept of change with respect to data and, and especially drastic change, which can affect, you know, we, which we've seen anyway with the pandemic of late in demand figures going haywire and yeah. all kinds of sort of societal behavior changing dramatically where you see that you have to be super careful with that coming into a, any model bayesian or otherwise as to how that's going to affect the future operation of that model maybe you want to sandbox it a little bit maybe you want to put a, a mark around that data set and say i wouldn't put too much belief in this this set of data if I were you, because the probability that we have a pandemic is, I hope, <laughs> really small, usually. So it speaks to a lot of that kind of dynamic streaming of data and how you react to change in that. So yeah, I like it from that perspective. That's really cool. Um, thanks, Jeremy. And I think hopefully some people listening today will have updated their own ideas about what Bayesian inference is and come away with a new idea for how it can be employed in data science. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for joining us today at the Data Cafe. You can like and review this on iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. Or if you'd like to get in touch, you can email us, jason at datacafe.uk or jeremy at datacafe.uk or on Twitter at datacafepodcast. We'd love to hear your suggestions for future episodes.